Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. It's Wednesday morning. You're listening live on Sirius XM. And I have in the studio with me Shane Jensen, professor of statistics, and Kate Massey, professor of the practice at the Wharton School of Business. And we are overlooking Wharton's Locust Walk. And I'm Professor Adi Weiner, also of the Department of Statistics. We had a charming half hour racing through a whole bunch of sports. This is definitely a busy season, but it is certainly baseball yeah. is uh, foremost in, in everyone's mind because of opening day. That is uh, tomorrow, although technically speaking, the Mariners have already faced yeah, the A's Yeah, no, we've already had a couple games in the books. And, uh, and to usher in our baseball season, we have... Joining us on the phone this morning is Ben Ryder, who is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, which he joined in 2004, and he's written over 25 cover stories. But he's most famous in our circles for writing um, the book Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All, which was released in paperback just this week. So I'd like to welcome Ben Ryder to, well, back to Wharton Moneyball. Ben, great to have you on. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Well, yeah, it is certainly spectacular. I don't know where you are right now. Um, which which great American city, I guess, you're in somewhere? I'm in New York, where it's uh, clear but cold, I guess you would say. <laughs> clear but cold, indeed. I think it's about 32 this morning, and uh, there's a game tomorrow, 50. Maybe maybe we'll see 55. That should be nice. Is that uh, for baseball? It seems we're starting earlier than earlier than ever. We're sort, sort of in March. So let's, let's hear a little bit about what you're up to. Um, so what has been the reaction to Astro Ball since it first came out? Well, the reaction has been fantastic. I think that people have really embraced uh, the ideas in there, specifically the big ones about focusing on process over outcome, how the Astros did that, and how they kind of moved beyond, or I shouldn't say moved beyond Moneyball, but really started to use data in a different way uh, and, and looking at a much wider range of inputs as far as making their decisions, uh, including quantifying things like their scouts, gut instincts and the human factor really trying to combine man and machine to get the best out of both obviously this has paid serious dividends for them not only the world series in 2017 which some of us thought might happen but almost getting their last year in the alcs and of course they enter season three of their ascendance as one of the top two or three favorites to again bring home a ring well, absolutely. And so tell me exactly what you mean by that when you say this, this amalgam of, of, of sort of data and, and human beings. And, and, and is there any particular example you can bring to the, to the front that sort of, you know, kind of sort of exemplifies this, this combination? Or, 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 yeah, or like what, what is it part of their organizational – what is it about their organization? How do they actually implement this kind of idea of like focusing on process over outcome? Ben, let me jump in as well real quickly because I had an interesting moment with, with Luno. He came through here in the fall. He came through yeah. here for, in the fall for a sports business conference, and he was a keynote speaker, and I had the chance to interview him. And I had just read your book, and it was great prep for the interview, by the way, obviously, and great book. I, 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 I pimp your book all the time. I'm, I'm going to mostly shut up and let, let the baseball guys do the interview. But I want to say this one thing that Luno said to me. I said, hey, you know, I read the whole damn thing. The book is the premise of the book is that y'all have figured out how to blend the old school scouts with the new school technology. And I just want to know how you did it. I want to know details. And he just kind of smiled. I said, you didn't let him write the real details, did you? And he just smiled. And so that's kind of the, the I, I mean, I'm giving you a hard time with with the with the kernel of truth in there. It's like the book is phenomenal. But you, you, you seemed constrained. You weren't able to really lay out the details of how it is that they blame the blend the scouts with the analysts, if, I, if I'm not wrong. 
Well, it's certainly more of a conceptual uh, thing than really kind of getting into their algorithms or anything like that. But I think that they had sensed that the pendulum had swung uh, almost too far towards Moneyball, towards just hard statistics, and was not capturing all those soft inputs that they thought uh, perhaps traditional stats uh, weren't reflecting. You know, they think that there is value in human expertise in uh, the gut instincts that scouts have developed over their long careers in baseball. I think they think that if you're simply following, uh, you know, stats, OPS, OBP, uh, even some of the more advanced TrackMan uh, statistics, then you're not going to have an advantage over over the rest of the league. Maybe well, that 10% difference uh, might come from your human factors, the soft inputs that uh, you know that not everybody has. So I think what they did, or I know what they did, is they combined all those inputs into one decision-making system, and they were incredibly disciplined as far as following it uh, to guide really every one of the thousands and thousands of decisions they made, not only draft picks, but free agent signings, contract extensions uh, no team's been more data driven than the astros and the results have been phenomenal but here's the, the thing in the early days of moneyball no one was using the data that was sitting in front of everyone's faces mm-hmm. just the data that you can collect by watching the game the they were ignoring things like obp and they were they were thinking about things just sort of you know ass backwards that everyone is integrated right now and there's a whole you know group of people, you can call them college players or, or high school players or, or international players, for which we don't have that kind of data, which you really have to rely on the scouts' instincts to, to sort of you know bring it forward. And I'm going to bring us to an article that you just wrote about Mike Trout. Mike Trout was in high school, and only one team drafted him. And, how, and the question is, how did everyone sort of miss potentially the, the greatest player of this generation? And that has, that's a decision that has to be made by scouts. Can you comment a little bit about Mike Trout and, and, what, and how a team may react to his information? Sure. Well, yeah, you're right. You don't have the statistical information for Mike, Stout, Mike Trout. He plays in New Jersey. As we know today, uh, baseball season is very cold in New Jersey. High school players in New Jersey might play 16 games, you know, three or four of them snowed out. So you just don't have that body of stats that you like to have to make an a informed decision on it. So you really have to rely on what your scouts are seeing, in part, probably more heavily, actually, for high school players uh, than anybody else. Uh, just because those stats are unreliable, you don't understand necessarily the level of competition against which they were put up. So for the Astros, the decision to draft Mike Trout was a scouting decision. It really was a scout called Greg Moorhart, who went to New Jersey, saw this guy and felt a firelight somewhere in the back of his brain that this guy has greatness within him. Now, the article you're talking about, I spoke with Billy Bean, who got a bit exercised, actually, when I was asking him, why don't you guys take Mike Trout? Did they have a higher pick? They they had an opportunity to take him before. Yeah, Yeah. they had the 13th pick. Look, 22 teams that year had the opportunity to pick Mike Trout, and none of them did. Uh, As we know, the A's preferred to go with college players as they did that year. They picked a shortstop named Grant Green out of USC, who's not even in the league anymore, because college pitch college players were safer. They're more predictable. Ben, well, that's ben, what Moneyball wrote about, yeah. Ben, you said Bing got exercised when you raised this. What, what did he say? <laughs> well, he basically told me, he's like, look, like we liked Mike Trout a lot, but we weren't one of the only teams to skip him. Uh, we, we weren't the only team to pass on him. 22 teams passed on him. 
Uh, the question you should be asking is why did the Angels pick him? And that's the question <laughs> I did ask the Angels. Look, it's not. Did like they have an answer to that? I mean, what, what what did what did Mike Trout demonstrate in high school that was visible to anyone? It was just entirely hindsight. Are we looking back at Mike Trout as as a senior in high school and thinking to ourselves, given what we've seen about him now, there must be something available? Or was it just we the word of this one scout? <laughs> uh, it was a collection of moments. And look, let's be real. A lot of this is clouded by retrospect. Like now that we know he's Mike Trout, yeah. if you're a scout, you can go back in your memory and be like, oh, I knew he was going to be great when he did this. But when you talk to these guys, there are specific moments. You know, like Trout was pulling the ball down the left field line uh, in this, I guess, pre- pre-game BP. And he wasn't an opposite field, field hitter at all. And the scout said, hey, Mike, you know, why don't you just try to hit a few the other way? Next pitch, he hit like 10 in a row down the right field line <laughs> or starting on the next pitch. He just had this control of his body, this explosive athleticism, even at 17, that simply jumped off the field to somebody who's been watching high school games in New Jersey for 30 years. So, Ben, the, the statistically what we'd always want to ask is, okay, if you you, you got to pit that against all the times that the you, you use this phrase, the firelight went off in the back of the guy's head. How many times that happened in the past that didn't pay off? That's the thing that's missing in this analysis is, like, there are lots of false positives in these yeah. situations, and, 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 we, and we'd lose track of those. Validation, I think, mm-hmm. this is the, the key thing. Yeah. That's right. And, and availability, right? Like, it's a, it's a memory of an incredibly emotionally satisfying event that overshadows maybe many other similar events that uh, didn't pan out in a, in a similar way. Uh, look, that's part of the art of scouting. Really. But, but, what, but I, I, I think it also kind of does segue a little bit into this sort of investment in variance, right? Is that, you know, I mean, if, if, if these types of players like Mike Trout are just kind of these, like, maybe it's just completely unpredictable that somebody like that would, would come about, then maybe you want sort of a scouting team or like an organization that has some of these kind of more unconventional people as part of it. And, you know, yeah, you're going to probably get unlucky with a large number of, of, of these kind of, you know, players that you take on. But if if you, you maybe want to almost have like kind of, you know, allow yourself a chance to get somebody like Mike Trout might be like more investing in, in kind of variants and maybe taking sort of one of these more unconventional strategies at times. I'll take you back to something that Jeff Luno said and that I write in Astrobowl. They view assembling an organization with almost a portfolio approach, right? You got your safe bets. Those would probably be like high-performing college players. And then you have your high-variance flyers, right? Like the volatile assets that could burn out or just as easily uh, turn into all-stars. Arguably the first pick that the Astros ever made, or that Jeff Luno's Astros made, the first overall pick in 2012, of Carlos Correa was one of those high-variance picks, right? I just want to interrupt here. How could a first yeah. pick be a high variance? You'd think that that's, that's generally not. That's more the But we just talked about Trout. Trout was first round. He was just first uncertainty. round. He uncertainty. He was uncertain. Well, that's the point. So, As opposed to, say, yeah. a college player who's more take, predictable. Take, yeah, you know, you're taking pitcher. a more uncertain player with your high picks. So what, was, what, what did they see in Carlos Carrera that other people weren't seeing? Well, uh, they saw a couple of things. I mean, he was a high school player, first of all, so that's riskier mm-hmm. uh, by its nature. He was from Puerto Rico, which at that time in 2012 hadn't produced very many good players in a long time. Baseball tradition was great, but it, it seemed as if the level of competition had gone down there. 
but this was, again, it was a combination of uh, analytics, of like liking some of the metrics that they were seeing from him and his showcases that he played in, in Florida and stuff. And it was a strong scouting pick. Mike Elias, who was then assistant general manager and scouting director for uh, Jeff Luno, saw Correa again and again and again. And he said he just got this feeling seeing him that this is what great young players look like. We were talking about Mike Trout going the opposite way. He describes very clearly this one swing where Correa hit a ball like 15 feet in the air straight down the opposite field foul line to hit the foul pole. He says he'd never seen anything like that before. That's what we're talking about when we talk about scouts who can pick things up uh, just based on their long experience. They picked Carlos Correa number one overall. Of course, that worked out very well, and it worked out for Mike Elias, too, as he's now the new GM of the Baltimore Orioles, where he's going to try to institute a similar plan to the one that worked. So maybe yesterday. maybe we'll see Orioles uh, start their fortune start to rise with with better management. But I want to bring it back to Elias more specifically. So he, you've actually told us some nice tales about what he saw in Carlos Correa and it became. And this is a great pick. Obviously, this is one of the foundational uh, picks for for the current Astro teams. But was there any kind of analysis of the scouts? In other words, how often did Elias say things did like this? And how and you know, bringing back what Cade's earlier remarks, or well, we have hindsight bias. So, is there any attempt when you look at this data that is coming from the human to kind of uh, analyze it, categorize it, and predict it and 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 validate it? Were the Astros doing things like that with their scouts? Oh yeah, they were. They were rigorously kind of analyzing and scouting their own scouts to expo- to uh, discover flaws in their methodology or uh, kind of good information that comes out of their methodology. What they would do that is you have a body of data as far as scouting grades that these guys have given to prospects over the long bodies of their career, right? On the scouting, That's scale, right. as we know, it mm-hmm. runs from 20 to 80. So you have this huge body of data uh, as far as the, their evaluations of players in the past in all sorts of areas. You know, the guy's fastball, uh, his swing, his potential to hit for power, all this stuff. And you also have outcomes for these things. Like that you know how these players to whom scout, these scouts assigned these grades turned out. So they would run regression analyses on them. You know, if you've given a, wow. a 60, <laughs> to the, 60 to the fastball of, you know, 99 previous pitchers, they know how those pitchers panned out. So then if you gave another 60 to 100th pitcher, uh, they had a pretty idea how that would pan out as well. And an interesting thing is it was also useful if the scouts were wrong as far as long as they were consistently wrong. Like if a scout was consistently undergrading or under-evaluating a particular attribute in a player, uh, they'd have a pretty good idea that, uh, that that player was better at that particular thing than the scouts thought. It's interesting. It's like it's like the person who consistently makes the wrong turn. They actually always know where they're going. You just go the opposite way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is something we all ought to do in our organizations. We all make forecasts. How often do we log them, and then and then importantly come back and revisit them? I, I you know you expect baseball to be further ahead. They have better detailed forecast and longer history. But I do I know that there are some football teams who do the same thing. That that ask their scouts on an annual basis to revisit their old grades and come up with kind of their strengths and weaknesses. What is it, you know, where are your false positives, where are your false negatives? That kind of review is vital in this business. But it's interesting, one of the important uh, aspects of getting this done is actually 
collecting information as you're you're producing it and so, instead of you know, sort of letting it disappear. You know, you have to have these reports. That's right. And I don't think yeah. in, in most organizations you don't necessarily collect it. Well, right. I mean, I saw a really interesting uh, – I'm not sure if, if you all saw this as well. There was a really interesting uh, art, a, a series of articles about people who were revisiting uh, scouting reports from the Cincinnati yeah, this is Reds. Lind- Lindbergh's back. article? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Cincinnati Reds scouting reports from like the mid-'90s on, on through. You're talking about – uh, public uh, pub this never happens right yeah. so they got they got a trove of these scouting reports and all the detail for years yeah. and they were able to d- really dive into them yeah and i i mean like obviously that's not to the public that's probably going to be rare that that kind of information is available but you know a good team will presumably compile you know a big part of like again improving your process is 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 continuing to compile those reports and revisit those reports even you know 10 years out 15 years out so tell us a little bit about what the astros uh, have done with data um in other directions that are really at the at the forefront or the frontier of, of baseball because baseball's in many senses have been doing this the longest so the standard things are they're moving kind of more in a new in new direction and maybe more behind the scenes so in your experience with the astros what should we be looking for in analytics in baseball going forward right well there's a clear shift going on right now in baseball at this point as far as talent identification uh using analytics to kind of figure out who the bright players are to draft and acquire uh the landscape's really flattened here there's not that much of a competitive advantage to be had there anymore clearly you can get better and better but those games are marginal you know sig mike dell the former director of decision sciences with the astros who's now the assistant general manager for Michael Elias in Baltimore, said sometimes we look back and dream of the days we were alone at the buffet. (laughs) There's a shift, though. It's shifting from talent ID to talent improvement, to use data and analytics to improve the performance of the players that you've already acquired. Like the Trevor Bauer story, for example. Right. Trevor Bauer, uh, and I wrote a long story in Sports Illustrated about him, uh, I guess about a month ago, He's been individually at the forefront of this for a long time. But he'll say there's a huge gap. And this is a member of the Cleveland Indian, Trevor Bauer. He said, he said a, lot, a lot of teams have become more advanced, much more advanced quickly in the past couple of years. There's still an enormous gap between number one and the rest of the league. And number one to Trevor Bauer is the Astros. Okay, They've had these programs in place for a couple of years now that continue to ramp up. Uh, to really improve, you know, like take a pitcher, right? Uh, they have high-speed cameras made by a company called Edgertronic. Uh, they use Rapsodo and TrackMan technology that can reveal the spin rate of a pitcher's pitches, uh, the spin axis in which, it, which he's throwing it, the vertical and horizontal break. You combine that technology with these high-speed cameras that can zero in, uh, focus in on the behavior of a pitcher's individual fingers as he releases each pitch, this can reveal kind of the way that a pitcher throws pitches that behave the most effectively as far as flummoxing opposing batters. It's a training technique whereby pitchers can learn which are their best pitches, exactly what they look like, and how they can throw them more often than not. this is really high tech stuff, guys. So Ben, I just yeah. wanted to just we only about a minute left, so we wanted to ask you specifically. So the the Astros are currently doing this, and certain individual, I guess, players are doing it almost on their own initiative, like like Trevor Bauer. But what for, how, what, how much penetration has this new technology had with most teams? It's funny. Last year I wouldn't have said very much, but this year traveling around spring training, you saw those little Edgertronic cameras at virtually 
every site. So every team is trying to catch up with what the Astros are doing, but uh, I'm not sure they're there yet. There yet. And so what do you think the next step would be other than uh, sort of these high-tech cameras? Is it going to be, you know, medical or health-oriented? Yeah, I, I think that a lot of medical stuff, I think, look, even down to the minor leagues, I think there's a lot of advantages that can be captured in the minor leagues, even as far as what these guys are eating. You know, these are supposed wow. to be high-level athletes, and they're often eating, like, uh, fast food and peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to go. Hey, what's wrong with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Listen, Ben, it was really uh, delightful to have you on our show this morning, and uh, we're all looking forward to the baseball season, and we're continually looking forward to reading the you know new stories by you. They're really sensational. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. So uh, that concludes our second quarter, and we'll take a little break. And uh, we had to say goodbye to Cade Massey, who had to go off and do Cade Massey things. So Sh- Sh- Shane and I will uh, be back in our in our third quarter with an amazing guest, Ken Pomeroy, who is the expert in uh, NCAA basketball.